Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty Sound of their breath fades with the light I think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain down Memphis Lower the curtain down on right I got no time for private consultation Under the Milky Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Alright, strap yourselves in, this one is crazy. Alright, this week our guest is Steve Kilby, frontman for Australian alternative rock legends, The Church. Everybody knows the church, right? So, a little bit of history. They've been around for almost 40 years, and they've been consistently releasing music almost that entire time. And they've had a lot of songs that were played on alternative radio, like Unguarded Moment and Metropolis and Reptile and Tristesse and a few others. This song right here is really the only time they crossed over into the pop charts in the States anyway. This, of course, is Under the Milky Way. It reached number 24 almost exactly 30 years ago in 1988. This song, if you ask me, is still just as beautiful and haunting and impactful as it was then. It has lost nothing in all of that time. And you're going to find out he doesn't exactly like talking about it. That's how we kick this thing off. Now, as I mentioned, they are still very much at it. They put out, in fact, Steve basically put out two albums last year. The Church put out, uh, I think it was probably their 25th or 26th album. It's called Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity. Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity. And it is my second favorite Church album. That's how good it is. That's how good he is at still doing what he does. He also has a side project called Kilby Kennedy that he does with a guy named Martin Kennedy. They put out an album last year as well called Glow and Fade. That one is also very, very good. Now, that's a preface to basically just tell you that this is one of the best interviews we've ever featured on here. And the reason why is because Steve is brash and opinionated and unfiltered. He doesn't care what you think. He says what's on his mind. And I love people like that. He's honest about the drugs and the money and the... the uh, politics within the band, his process. He tells a story in here about writing lyrics that is so profound. I loved it. He also gives his unfiltered opinion of other bands from down under. Like we talk a lot about the go-betweens, Hoodoo Gurus, In Excess, Neil Finn. He tells you exactly what he thinks about all of these people. It is the best. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation. I think you will. I don't know how you can't. Let me tell you, there is some bonus material. If, listen till the very end. After the so, the closing song, listen, there's another couple minutes of information in there that ties back to another episode we did a while back. Regular listeners may know what this is about. I have to give a huge thank you to a couple of people. 
Susan McDonald is, as I've mentioned before, my Australian connection. I am so grateful for Susan and the work that she does to help connect me with artists from down there that I love. Having said that also, Lloyd Sean Epperly, uh, I think he's their publicist or something in the States. Susan talked to Lloyd, Lloyd talked to Steve, and we managed to make this happen. Thanks both of you for allowing this to happen. And Steve, you're an amazing interviewee. He called me from his home on Bondi Beach outside of Sydney, Australia. Um, oh, I'll bring it on. Okay. And we've had some people on that you probably know. David Sterry of uh, Real Life helped. Well, so his, the person who does his like publicity is this woman named Susan McDonald. You may even know her. And they both became fans of the show. And they helped me get in touch with you because they knew I was a fan of yours. So they're kind of my okay. Australian connection. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Send me an angel. That's Send me an angel right now. Nice. You got it. You got it. Okay. All right. So for starters, now I got to tell you, I, um, I've i touched your back once. You fucking bastard. <laughs> yeah. I. Um, are we allowed to swear? Are we yes. allowed to swear? Yeah, you can say whatever okay. you want. What are you touching my fucking back for? Because uh, I saw what you. What do you I, mean? I've only seen you in concert once. And it was, right. and I looked it up today. I wish it was more than that, but I've only had the chance once. It was uh, March 25th, 2004 in Sacramento uh -huh. at this weird yeah. little cowboy bar called, I just found out, The Roadhouse. You guys are very okay. thorough I, in documenting these every show on your website. So I just I have merciful, mercifully forgotten it. Yes. Okay. Well, it, um, it was on the Forget Yourself tour. And uh, yeah, it was this okay. weird little cowboy bar, and there wasn't really right. a backstage, and you guys were in the corner, so you, you oh, had great. to, you sounds... to kind of exit through the crowd. And that's when you, fucking great. Yes, yeah. and when you came when back, when you did, yes, some some bastard touched my back, and it yes. was you. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> yes, you know, I... I've been going to I've been going to seeing analysts for years about that. I felt so I felt so disempowered when someone touched my back in Sacramento really? in 2004. <laughs> so violated. <laughs> Why did you touch my back? Well, I was kind of giving you like a good good boy, you know, good job. Oh, okay. oh pat, so you patted my back. Yes, exactly. Oh, slapped my back. That's a lot different to touching it. Yeah, well, that, that's true. I should clarify. So, yes, yeah, so you yeah. guys came back yeah. for the encore through the crowd. Yeah. And you were leading the way and... You were shorter than I imagined, and at the time... Hey, what do you mean? Yeah. I'm five foot fucking eleven. Really? Yeah. I'm six eight, so everyone's shorter oh, to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah. I had that wrong. You were, at the time, a little little pudgier, and you had the long uh, 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 ponytail going on, but uh, that was... You walked by with such purpose. I'll never forget the look on your face. You looked like you were just... I got I can't wait to get this over with. Like you were so either determined or angry or something. Mm. Cutting right through and uh, I gave you a, you know, good old boy pat on the back when you walked through. Okay. Well, that yeah. sounds really attractive, a ponytailed fat bastard <laughs> walking through the crowd angrily. <laughs> that's that's kind of what it was. That's kind of what it seemed like anyway. Fair enough. Yeah. And then you were, in, I'm in Can Denver, you... Colorado, and you were just here a couple of months ago, and I was going to go, mm -hmm. and I couldn't, I think the sitter backed out, or something happened at the last minute that I had to miss 
your show here in Denver recently. Who backed out? I think it was our babysitter or I don't remember uh-huh. what it was, but at the last second I had to miss it because of something out of my power. And I really regretted that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, that's bad. That's bad. I mean, it I'm was. sorry you missed it. It was, yeah. It was a great yeah. show too. I believe it. I believe it. So anyway, that's my live history with the church. Now, I want to start by talking about uh, Under the Milky Way, because that's a song most people over... I know. Well, okay, this is what... Yeah, go on. (laughs) Whatever, go on. Go on, just fucking having your own. No, well, this is why I want to talk about it, because I've been reading to get ready to talk to you that you kind of don't like that song. No, I don't. No, I don't not like it. I'm just tired of talking. I'm tired of talking about it. Like okay. written eight hundred thousand songs, and yes. people talk about that one. But I understand why that is, so I don't really mind. Well, I don't need to get in the weeds. I just wanted to better understand your feelings about that song because that was, as I understand it, during this period of you guys in L.A., where you weren't the happiest anyway, and probably weren't getting along with Wadi Wachtel, which is a very strange choice for a producer anyway. But I didn't know any of this. So at the time when you're starting to kind of break America and gain new fans, you're at your lowest, is what it sounds like. Do I have this right? Not really. I didn't mind Waddy. We didn't agree on everything. I didn't like the other guy that much. He was pretty obnoxious. Who was the other guy? That the ju- Greg Ladani, who's now oh, sure, dead, sure. I'm yeah. sorry to say. Okay. I always thought that something interesting could come out of the juxtaposition of the, those guys and us, and it did. No, I wasn't really at a low ebb at all. I was um, okay. low ebb. Low ebb came a few years later. Well, but I know the no, dr- I was, drugs kind of brought yeah. some of that in, but from what, in researching you guys, it was sounding as if that was a period of frustration. We don't like LA. We don't like being produced by Wadi. Uh, I don't know that I even loved it this was, under the Milky Way song that much. It was it was mixed. It was mixed emotions. There were great things about LA. Mm. There were women, there were cheap, good drugs. There were, we had these great apartments. I didn't agree with all of Waddy's ideas. Um, I don't, I, I think, I think, I'm, I look, I think all the songs I write, except for one or two, are good songs. Sure. I love some of them more than others. I think Under the Milky Way is a good song. Um, I didn't think it was going to be a hit. I didn't really have any opinion on it. It mm. was a song on the album. I was, I was pretty happy with it. I certainly wasn't hating it, hating the song or hating anything at all. I mean, there were some frustrating and stupid things happening making that record. Label you interference know, with the producers and, Yeah, that's what I figured. Uh, no, label didn't interfere that much, really. Mm. They pretty much let it... Just having fucking arguments with, like, Waddy and Greg a bit, and, and the other guys. I mean, mm. whatever I do, I'm at odds with... Like, have you heard of Bob Clearmountain? Yes, of course. I was going to ask you about him. Okay. He, now, he made a list and he said, most difficult people I've ever worked with. I was number three. But his favorite album, The Blurred Crusade, was like number three as well. Really? Or number two. Like of all the records, it's all the records he'd ever worked on. So I am a difficult guy. If, if you know, I'm opinionated. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I fucking, I invented this whole band. And, you know, it, yeah. it's all Basically, you know, it's sort of, so I am very opinionated about my own band, my own creation. Mm-hmm. And I fucking used to argue with these guys, you know, when they were stupid fucking things that used to happen. 
you can imagine, you know, like yeah. I'm, a, I'm a sort of a, you know, I'm a sort of an arty lefty mm -hmm. sort of type and they weren't. Really? <laughs> um, mm. No, you know, they, they sort of like, they like rock and roll, you know, yeah. no, they like making millions. They, they were producing Jackson Brown and yeah. all this other stuff. And, you know, to, doing us was a bit of just a money gig for them. They didn't, you know, they didn't really believe in it. Yeah. After it was a hit, after Under the Milky Way was a hit, there was a lot of um, revisionism done, mm -hmm. a lot of going back and looking at history. Oh, and the guys in the band, they knew it was a hit. And Waddy and Greg knew mm -hmm. it was a hit. And, uh, you know, everybody knew it was a hit and what a great song. But it wasn't seen like that at the time. It was just a, it was just a song on the record. Yeah. So I'm two questions for you. Number one, yeah, who thought? Now he did a great job, but who thought pairing you up with Waddy, Warren Zevon's producer, was a good idea? I don't know that he's even done that many other production jobs. And then, like you said, he's a Jackson Brown guy. He's a Laurel Canyon, Southern California yeah. Eagles type yeah. guy. Why? Why did um, they pair him with you? I think to try and have to do to exactly for what happened. Mm. that they would sort of bring out the um, hit single side of us. You know, what he had, what he had a part to play in Under the Milky Way, you know, was he, mm -hmm. he brought in the drummer, Russ mm. Kunkel, to play this drum machine, and he had a few ideas. But, you know, I think the song might have been a hit, whoever produced it, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was sort of like, and, and the, the version that was, came out on the record wasn't really that different from my demo. Okay. But, you know, they... they they did. They brought something to the table. They did. Yeah. They and okay. the juxtaposition. I think the juxtaposition position of us being an, uh, you know, alternative indie whatever type headstrong mm -hmm. sort of guys, and then you've got the complete opposite of these guys who have like wanted to make have hits and mm -hmm. do all this stuff. I think that sort of pulled us into into the middle. Okay. And that was that leads to my next question, which is that I wonder if the fact that you were had relocated to LA. You were producing the album, recording it there in LA. You have Wadi, who's this lifer and sort of insider into the local music scene there. If that is what sort of uh, motivated or provoked the record label to get behind you a little more than they might have otherwise. Like we've, what, we've got one of our own Wadi Wachtel working on this album and this song. We're yeah, going to give it a yeah, little yeah. more promotion than we might yeah. otherwise. You know, you know, there was this, I mean, because there's no record labels anymore, but there was right. a real thing. There was a thing that we did what they want. They signed us up and we did what they wanted to do and it worked out. So it was a very mm -hmm. self-congratulatory, mm -hmm. you know, it was like, look, look what we've done. And everybody at Arista, for the first and last time ever, a huge American mm -hmm. record company, right from the top, right down to the guy making the coffee, they all were behind it and they yeah. all said under the milky way is going to be a hit and lo it was yeah because it w it was already a good catchy atmospheric song and then they put their muscle right behind it mm -hmm. now did that same amount of muscle apply i, th I think reptile was the next song Should have stopped this long Go, go now, you've been set free 
Reptile was the next single, but no muscle applied. Okay, to that was at all. that was my question. Yeah, because they didn't, no, they didn't. They didn't. They thought they didn't think Reptile was a hit. I mean, I reckon it's as much a hit as Under the Milky Way. Really, mm -hmm. I mean, we did a video, but they there was not that belief, not that sort right. of like. Um, I mean, Clive Davis came in the studio, the head honcho, mm -hmm. sat down. Listen to the record, listen to Under the Milky Way, and turn around to me, and he shook my hand and said, congratulations, that's a hit. And I said, really? <laughs> and as he was walking, around, walking out, like, yep, he turned around and said, believe me, that's a hit. Nice. And he was very happy. And that's, that's all he wanted to hear was a fucking hit. He just invested, you know, mm -hmm. 200, 300 grand, whatever it was, and yeah. he wanted to fucking hear a hit, and he heard sure. a hit. And that was it. That was he was happy. And he said to everyone in the company, this is a hit. This is a priority. Make this work. And it yeah. just came at a good time. It was a sort of a it was a sort of song people congrat could congratulate themselves for liking because, you know, at that time there was hardly anything cool or groovy or ambiguous or anything right. moody on the radio. It was all. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, with exceptions, there were good things in 1988, mm -hmm. in 1988 too, but mostly it was kind of rubbish. And sure. Under the Milky Way was a sort of a, a stood out a respite. Yeah, yeah, it stood out, stood yeah. out. So, yeah. do you think then that they knew going in in the recording of Starfish that they really only had one hit? One thing off this because no, I've only they, ever heard they, your music on alternative radio except for that song. So did they um, think we believe in this whole thing or we're just going to milk Milky Way as for as much as we can now and see what happens to the rest? I think I think it was like this. They had at any one point in time, they would have a number of irons in the fire. Hmm. They would have the church making an album, the Crusados making an album. Who's the who's the bam who the singer was Enya, the, her, her sister? Who oh, were, um, what were they called? Yeah, the. Um, oh, yeah, the Irish band. Yes. Right. So at any one point, at any one point in time, you're a big record company, and you put out the dollars, and you've got six or seven irons in the fire at any point in time, and hopefully one or two of them come good. So we, we to them would have just been an iron in the fire. There was a guy there called Mitch Cohen, an A and I guy. He was kind of had come from the lefty sort of side of music, college radio, and all that, and he'd like the church. And I think he put his neck on the line, went to them all and said, give me a shot with this band. I reckon they've never really been sort of properly worked. And mm. I think Arista were mildly optimistic, but I don't think, I think it really surprised them what happened. And mm. they were really, they would, everybody loved that fucking song. So it was really, as I say, they were all really proud of it and, and thought they thought they'd really kicked an unusual goal. You know mm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Instead of just knocking down an obvious billiard ball into the pocket, mm -hmm. they completed a really tricky shot and pulled it off, and everybody was going, wow, where did yeah. that come from? Good. Yeah, makes sense. So then when the next album comes out and you go back with Wadi, is the thinking then on Gold Afternoon Fix, is the thinking, well, let's see if we can do this again? 
And did they think maybe Metro Metropolis was going to be that hit? Or were you being back to relegated to the alternative stations after that? They hoped for a big hit, and I don't think they thought Metropolis could be as big a hit as Under the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. Under the Milky Way just had a sort of a magic and a sparkle that Metropolis didn't have. Metropolis isn't as good a song either. So, yeah, they were hoping to replicate the success, but um, okay. they didn't. Okay. They didn't. Yeah. It, it didn't happen. Okay. Well, you know, when I say that, you know, oh, it only sold, you know, 300,000 albums. Yeah. Well, and it... You know, you know but if you sold 300,000 albums now, you'd be a fucking superstar. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it, I think it says a lot that you guys... I mean, the church are kind of legends on the alternative radio scene. I mean, you, you've been there for 35 years consistently. Anyone paying attention to, like, college radio or alternative radio knows, knows exactly who you are and Respects yeah. more than just that one song. And, not only, one and not only that, but we have influenced loads of bands mm-hmm. who have privately come to me and said, oh, God, we're huge fans of yours, mm-hmm. like really big major top league bands, but never fucking for some reason said it in the press or yeah. covered, our, covered our songs or did anything. But believe me, a lot of people were listening to the church and going, oh, here's something for us. Um, one band, surprisingly enough, who I've seen three or four times give us credit is Green Day. No, Billy, really? Billy Joe, yeah, Billy Joe, who did an interview with a guitar magazine, said, what's your idea of a good guitar band? He said, I saw The Church. He said, they were amazing, the two guitars. Another wow. time I saw an interview with him and they were saying, tell us about what it was like being a teenager growing up in wherever the fuck he's from. And he was going... Oh, I remember listening to Metropolis on mm. Casey Kasem or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't think we influenced them, but they liked what we do. And then there are other bands out there um, who obviously we have influenced. But, you know, draw your own conclusions. I'm not just going to drop names of people. Okay. But no, that's there are a lot of, there, there are a lot of big bands out yeah. there in the world and bands that don't exist anymore who were very influenced by what the church did. I believe it. I I can tell a story, too. Um, In fact, I was reading back in the day you guys opened up for Duran Duran. And what's kind of interesting is, oh, boy, I want to hear a story that that's a groan. But let me tell you. So about, uh, I don't know, eight years ago, maybe I saw Duran Duran in concert and the band Neon Trees was the opener. If you're familiar with Neon Trees and their front man, uh, Tyler Glenn, got up 
And this is in a large arena here in Denver. Who? And he's, Who's their front man? His name's Tyler Glenn. Do you, are you Not familiar? Simon Le, what happened to oh, Simon LeBlob? Si <laughs> That's Duran Duran's front man. There, when I saw them in concert, the opener was a group called Neon Trees. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. And Tyler Glenn yeah. is their front man. And during the show, he was talking about how much back in the day when he, how much he loved the church and he would put church songs on mixtapes for girls, which is interesting because he's since come out as being gay. But anyway, uh, it, uh, I thought that's a real full circle moment. You know, you opened for Duran mm. Duran 35 mm. years ago and now their opener yeah. is, is saying how much he loves you. First of all, tell me a Duran Duran story. You moaned. Why? I don't really have a story except oh, to say they no well they were they they were nice blokes okay they were a new they were a new romantic band they were playing to 11 year old girls oh. we were a psychedelic band yeah. that played to surfies and trippers and hippies in Australia mm -hmm. and guess what and we were also the Got the godfathers of the new psychedelic movement in England. This is the tragedy. When we did our own shows in London, we pulled fucking 2,000 people twice no at, the, at, a venue, at a venue called The Venue. Then they stick us on before Duran Duran. Guess what? The little girls mm. of 11 didn't mm. like us. Mm. They didn't, wouldn't have fucking liked anything. They wanted to see Duran Duran. They were salivating for Duran Duran. It didn't matter who you are. You, you couldn't have gotten through to them. The fucking Beatles could have played. It was like they only wanted Duran Duran. It was no opportunity for us whatsoever. Our music and our intent and everything about us is diametrically opposed, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And um, after about eight gigs, I pulled the plug, much yeah. to our record company's fury, who'd paid £30,000 in 1982. Boy, that was a lot of money. Mm. They had paid £30,000 for us to be on that tour. And after eight gigs, I went, nah, yeah. forget it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So who were, were there bands that you had positive experiences with back in the day? Whether, whether you were the headliner and they opened for you or you opened for them? What were some of the like really, you know, exceptional tours I've, you went on back then? Okay. Let me tell you one of the nicest bands to play with. One of the band I never mind opening for and who every member of this band are gentlemen and gentle ladies, and that's the psychedelic furs. Oh, nice. Okay. Yep. All right. Done two tours with the furs. I love Richard Butler. I Amanda too. Kramer has become a very, very close and intimate friend of mine. We're going to do a little tour together in America, uh, doing out of the way places with her playing piano and me singing and playing guitar. Um, the furs are a wonderful band. And then we've had other bands you don't have much to do with. We toured with the Rain Parade. We, they mm. opened for us. They were a great band. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I can't remember. I can't remember. We, we don't really, we're not really, we don't really interact that much. The first was the first band we were really interacting with after hours and hanging out with and sort of um, being like friends with and joking around with. So, okay. but before that it was it's pretty much, a lot of sort of standoffishness, I think. Yeah. Now, did you, because you guys did, didn't you do like kind of a co-headlining tour or whatever just a couple of years ago? Did you also tour with them back in the day or maybe I'm misremembering? No, it was just, no, not back in the day. It was, oh. it was like within the last three or four years. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, uh, I wanted to ask you, and one of my listeners, uh, I think his name's Paul Hicks. 
I know him as Hicks on Twitter. He asked me to, he, you're his favorite band, the church or his, he's an Aussie. The church is his favorite band. He asked me to ask you a question I had in mind as well. It seems like at some point you guys sort of distance yourselves from feeling as if maybe you needed to write pop songs or hit songs or radio friendly songs. And first of all, is that accurate? And secondly, how do you feel about like the heyday album and stuff like that? Do you like that stuff or do you feel like you've matured beyond that so much that it's sort of juvenile to you at this point? No, I think they're two different questions, surely. Mm -hmm. They're two totally different questions. How do I feel about the pop material and how do I feel about heyday? I don't think heyday was particularly a pop album. Do you? No, but I would say that there are four minute songs that, you know, like Tristesse or Murr or whatever. These are songs that made some sense on the radio, whereas, you know, you're, Late 90s, early 2000s stuff, maybe less so. I, I think I think all of our albums, except the first album, which I'm not particularly fond of, I think all of our albums are good. Yes, they're all they're all at least seven out of ten. Agreed. I don't. There's no apart from and even people say they love our first album. I think all of our albums, no one could listen to that and seriously go, "Oh, that isn't good." Mm -hmm. They're all good, and they all have a lot of thought put into them. Some have more pizzazz, some have more originality. Sometimes it's sort of, we've just sort of like the church by numbers, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, I can totally see that. That makes sense. Do you have that, a moment? Other, oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, go I was going to ask you, I, um, I know people don't like to answer the, like, what's your favorite, you know, song question or whatever, but is there a moment? Because like I said, we're going to play little bits of songs in here. What's a, is there a moment on a particular track that means something special to you. You're yeah, I think proud of it. And you mentioned this song, Murr. So invisible, 
I think when we did Myrrh, I sat back and I sort of said to myself, now we've turned into ourselves. Mm. That's not anybody else. The lyrics, the singing, the playing, the music, that's the church. That doesn't owe anything to the Beatles or David Bowie or mm. the Rolling Stones or T-Rex or the Birds or anyone. We, although all those people, but putting that all together, we finally came up with Myrrh, I thought, Okay, we've turned into ourselves. These lyrics I'm singing, nobody else could have or would have written them. Mm. They're my lyrics. Mm -hmm. They fell out of my head. They're not me trying to be like David Bowie, which mm -hmm. almost every other song I can <laughs> think of. No, almost every other song I can think of. I had there was something in mind when we started that I something else had sort of triggered at some other act, or I was still under their spell. But I think by heyday, especially that song Myrrh, and especially the lyrics and everything about it to me is like the the sort of the, the rebirth of the of the, or the the church becoming the church Got our it. bar mitzvah or whatever yeah. you know our coming of age yeah that makes sense that makes a lot of sense it will it's going to surprise you what i think my favorite my three favorite church albums number 1 is priest equals aura number and the, then two and three yeah. i think are your last yeah. two I actually enjoy, and I'm not just, I'm not just brown nosing here. I actually enjoy your last two albums more than almost all your other stuff, and I think it's because that dreamy, you know, kind of gauzy haziness that you guys perfect so well Do you is know especially what? beautiful in these last two albums. Do you know what? What? Do you know what? I completely concur, and you've made me very happy. And I think, well, you know your stuff. Really? Pre-seek was or pre-seek was or our best album. I would say maybe um, I also like Untitled 23. I thought that had some great stuff. But, yeah, our last two albums. Yep. Good. They're great. I really. There's the church. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they're just beautiful. They're so dreamy. And um, I know that, like, psychedelic and that kind of druggy sound is what you're sort of known for. But 
these three were elevated in their sort of beauty that I I really liked. So those are some. Those are probably my favorite church albums. I agree. Pre sequels aura is an inexplicably widescreen album. It's sure is. like from the moment it starts to the moment it ends. It's like there used to be this phrase I used to kind of hate. A new two and big country and a few other people were a few other bands, they were talking about this idea of the big music, mm -hmm. the big music, the, the big, the, the sort of stuff that's not, it's not fucking, mm -hmm. it's no longer rock round the clock. It's sort of turned into sort of these grandiose statements. Sure. And I think, I think pre-sequels aura was like the big music. I don't know. I don't know how we did it. And we never did it again. And, you know, every now and then we'll be writing a new song and someone will say, wow, this is like something of pre-sequels of Zora. We just hit one of those. We just hit a, a winning streak. Good. Yeah, I really love that album. I'm glad you like it too. Um, now, let's get to some of the hard stuff. I mentioned the druggy sound. Drugs have yeah. been an is issue in your past. Do you mind if we talk about them for a second? Not at all. Okay, okay. Um, I'm an expert. Go ahead. I'm an, if ever there was an expert on drugs, it's me. That's Every time someone drops dead in, yeah, if some someone drops dead in Australia of an overdose, or someone's got Hep C, or someone gets busted, like straight away every newspaper and journalist in Australia just rings me up and goes, "What do you think of this, Steve?" <laughs> were they were they partying with you? Is that how it went down? Maybe a few of them have been. Yeah. Yeah. Just to backtrack, so in the late 90s, I think you were arrested in New York for drugs. Yeah, um, yeah. Your sound, the church's sound, obviously has a druggy vibe to it, as they say. As much as I wish that it wasn't such the cliche that the band that makes beautiful druggy sounding music also has to use the drugs to achieve that sound, um, would you say that the drugs were integral in you finding the sound that you were looking for maybe back I, then? Okay. I once read that Arthur Rambeau said an artist has to derange his senses in any way he can mm -hmm. and the ends justify the means. So I took drugs to experience a feeling and try, my aim was to bring that feeling, whatever it was, back with music. Mm -hmm. So to recreate that feeling without the drugs using music. And that worked for me with pop mm -hmm. and that worked for me with acid and that worked for me with mushrooms, and it worked for me with mescaline mm. and DMT. It did not work for me with cocaine mm. and heroin, interestingly enough. It worked for me for a little while, and that's pre-sequel Zora, heroin and opium. And then I just became an addict, and I made music despite heroin. I didn't try very hard, and it wasn't, except for that golden honeymoon period where I went, wow, I want to recreate this feeling before I was a total hopeless addict and I was just flirting with it. It gave me a something to, to re recreate. But each, each drug world I would enter, I would try and bring that back with music. I'd try and write songs to make people feel like they were on a drug that they didn't have to take. I'd yeah. sort of done all, I'd done all the hard work. Sure. Like, here, it, here it is. Here's, well, a, here's an album of you perfected yeah. that sound for sure. Yeah. Do you think the church would have been the same without any drugs at all? Do you think you would have achieved whatever kind of muse you were chasing without the drugs? It wouldn't have sounded like that. Really? <laughs> Look, I'm not brilliantly talented. 
Okay. What I am is very smart when it comes to perceiving elements within music mm -hmm. and then manipulating them and doing things with them and having ideas of how I could represent other people's ideas, represent them, but with my twist. Mm -hmm. I'm really, I'm, I'm really good at that. And um, I reckon I would have, even without drugs, yeah, I would have, I, I think I still would have written some great songs, but marijuana, especially not, forget all the others, you don't need sure. to take them. Smoking pot was very good for my, ha, is yeah. still, and will always be good for my creativity. It will be a fucking cold day in hell the day I sit down to write a song <laughs> without smoking a joint. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is that sort of your, um, your catapult into... I don't know anything you need to get your head on. I mean, you smoked a joint absolutely. at the beginning of our interview. So yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. So you kick absolutely. off big moments. Yeah, okay. yeah. It puts me in puts me in touch with the collective human subconscious. Okay. Um, puts me in touch with my muse. Puts me in touch with my creativity. Makes it all easy. Good. I can just be a vessel, and my sort of the stuff rewires my brain, and the ideas just fall out. Good. Okay. I have tried pot before but it was a long long time ago and uh, i'm originally from salt lake city where ah. i know you guys still have a pretty big following there and you probably and it's probably kind of uh anachronistic that uh the drug sound the druggy sound or the vibe psychedelic vibe of this band the church is sort of different than the culture of around salt lake city you know what i mean have you ever yeah. thought of that before why um, you might be big there of all places I wouldn't say we are bigger there than anywhere else. Oh, really? Um, okay. No. We might do a small three or 400 gigs seat gig and sell it out. Okay. But we're not we're not playing Salt Lake City Amphitheater mm. or anything, that's okay. for sure. Okay. And we, and we are no bigger. We are no, we are no bigger there. There are cities where we're bigger than that. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Just curious. Now, uh, going back to this kind of sound, okay. do you ever feel hemmed in but so I always find this interesting when I interview the bands that are known for a particular kind of style or sound in their music. Do you ever feel locked in or caged in by the sound or vibe you've created in your band? Do you ever feel like you can't explore beyond that? Does it ever occur to you to write a three minute pop song with a saxophone solo or anything like that? I feel unbelievably empowered by what we have. Absolute opposite of limited. I feel like we've got an amazing fucking thing that gives us all the latitude in the world to do almost anything and still make it sound like the church. I don't, there, we don't, you know, the sound we started with isn't the sound we have now. Mm -hmm. That sort of jingly jangly sound, we'd hardly ever have that. But we've, somehow we have, we have pulled off the paradox of changing and yet maintaining continuity with what we have been in the past. We don't abruptly change into something else and mm. sort of um, scare off our listeners. We kind of, we gently mutate mm. um, into something else. As our musical prowess gets better and we get more experienced. Um, so I feel, I feel like it's wonderful when we Good. get together. We've got all this experience and wealth of talent. Not, I don't feel, I don't feel straitjacketed at all. I feel like we could do anything we want to do. Good. If I could write a, if I could write a fucking three-minute pop single with a saxophone that would sell a million copies, don't you think I would? I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm asking. Here going, yeah, yeah, I would. Okay. I would just. 
I'd love to do. I'd love to do that. I'd love to have. I'd love to have a huge hit single at, at any stage of the game. Who wouldn't? Hey gang, let me break in here for a minute for a little bit of business. I'm going to take a little break from the midsection here, but we have a giveaway. And uh, so I had a couple of announcements I wanted to make. Number one, since uh, Steve is obviously an Australian-based artist, we are giving in, giving away a, a CD for an Australian singer-songwriter named Scott Candlish. This is an EP that he put out last year. It's called Home Away From Home. I don't know Scott at all, but here's the story. So Yan saw Scott last year in Edinburgh and was knocked out. And so he bought a couple of CDs, one for himself and one to give away for you guys. And so we thought it made sense that we would give it away, give away a, a CD for an Australian artist as we featured an Australian artist. So we're going to be doing a random giveaway as we often do shortly after, if, if this is, if you're listening to this on release day, shortly after you hear this, we're going to put out a link as we always do. You can register for the drawing and Yan will mail you that CD as soon as we know who the winner is, which will probably be later this week uh, over the weekend. So if you're interested in picking up a free CD for a great up and coming singer, singer songwriter named Scott Candlish, register to win that free CD. Okay. And all the details will be on Facebook very soon. So look to our Facebook page. Secondly, I don't know if you guys care about these kinds of things or not, but I appeared on the Beats and Eats podcast uh, a couple of days this weekend. Um, honestly, it's stories that most regular listeners have heard me tell before, but I wanted to say this because the host, Ty Ray, great guy, and they do, he does a lot almost with actors and actresses kind of similar to what we do with musicians. Um, in fact, I always think if I had a, an actor and actress podcast, it'd be very similar to that. There's a lot of, especially a lot of girls. If you were a dude in the eighties, he's talked to so many girls that you probably had crushes on from the movies back then. It's really awesome. So I don't know that you need to hear my episode, but go in and check out some of his stuff. Beats and Eats. Okay, really good podcast. And it's not as active as it used to be. So you'll have to go into the archives, find some older stuff. I would recommend an interview with the actress Kelly Lynch that Ty did just a couple of months ago. It was after the Harvey Weinstein stuff comes out. She talks very openly, very candidly about that. Now, normally his interviews are a lot of fun. This one was intense and newsworthy. So check out Beats and Eats, especially Kelly Lynch if you want. It's really, really good. Okay. I wanted to throw out some thank yous for the shares. As I mentioned last week, um, you know, it feels like we don't get that many shares or we, the people who share are the same people every week who I'm so grateful for. Um, but I just feel like I'm saying the names, same names over and over again, but I'm going to do it anyway, cause I'm so grateful for you. So Joe Royland and sit and spin growing up rock and sunny Pooney, Bud Verge, Jay Sabluski, Carrie Carlson, Anthony Porter, Tiny Montgomery, The Curious World Podcast, our buddy uh, Vandal over there, Janet Eck, someone named Joe, just says Joe, Save Rock and Metal, Jason Simons, Gregory Ray, Hub Rigel, and Ty Ray. Thank you to all of you. I thought last week's episode with Brian Howe was really, really good. That is exactly the kind of guest that I go for. Somebody everyone knows, but whose story is undertold. So you see the name and you're like, I remember that guy, but you don't know the story behind the guy. That, so I was really happy with how that one turned out. I'm glad you guys did too. I got a really good response. Uh, requests, I'm sort of shutting down requests for a while. I am so inundated with 
yours and the things that I want to do. I'm not really taking any, but I did get a good one that I wanted to mention. Uh, Scotty Williams mentioned Edwin McCain, which I thought was really interesting. Now, I only know a couple of songs by Edwin McCain. He was big in that, like, Hootie and the Blowfish, Counting Crows, who are, like, my least favorite band of all time era. But I know he had a couple of hits, and then I didn't see him for a while, and he used to do a lot of those kind of VH1 talking head shows, like best of the 80s or best of the 90s or worst week ever or those shows that sort of seem to go to a lot of comedians he was on there a lot and I always thought is this like a new path for him or was he always a really funny guy I'm curious how that works so I may seek out Edwin McCain because I think that's actually kind of an interesting um, idea and then we only got one new review this week and it was on Facebook uh, by Ross J. Feichert Hope I'm saying that right, Ross. Thank you for the Brian Howe interview. He's a wonderful singer and songwriter. I always liked, or I always really liked Bad Company with him. It's unfortunate that his former bandmates never honored him properly. Five stars. Thank you very much, Ross, for doing that. And you guys, uh, what you're listening to right here is a track off of that Glow and Fade album that came out last year from Kilby Kennedy. If you like the church and you like Steve's style, you're going to want to check this out too. So give it a listen, all right? Let's get back to Steve. And you've got a million side projects, and I really like the new Kilby Kennedy album, by the way, as well. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I just wonder if, if you ever feel like you have a creative notion or an urge or there's a song or a hook in your mind that you think, ah, I'd, I'd like to develop this, but it's not the church's sound. And so I feel like it's worth, it's not worth my time to go down that road. The way it works is the church write the music together. Okay. So I never think up anything for the church because the church have to write together. That is the church's modus operandi now is that every song is all written together and then I sing on it. Good. So, okay. so I don't have ideas like I used to, perhaps, where I go, oh, this, I, this, I should give this to the church, this is for the church. That doesn't happen, so I don't get that conflict. So I okay. know, I only, I don't, I rarely sit around and randomly generate songs. I'm more like a, a project-based thing. Mm. So Martin Kennedy comes to me and says, let's do a new album, here's all the music I've written, and then I go, right, and I write the lyrics. I don't have a bunch of lyrics that I look through and go, oh, what should I put on? I write the lyrics there and then. When I do a solo album, I write the songs myself, I write the lyrics myself, I produce it myself. I've got one in the wings waiting to come out. But mm. at no stage was any of that ever really earmarked for the church. It was always just going to be my album. So I don't have, a, I don't sort of sit down having a confused thing where I don't know where anything should go. I sort of do everything project by project. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Now, you talk about the collective nature of the church. What's going on with Marty? Marty Wilson Piper, your longtime guitarist. I know there's been some tensions in the band uh, over the years, but what led to him, you know, leaving? Okay. Finally, in a very in a very short answer, which is only my point of view. Mm -hmm. And if you ask everybody else, everybody's like a car accident. Everybody would have a different point of view. And Marty was managing us. Hmm. Um, he manages for quite a long time. The rest of us decided that we wanted him just to be a guitarist again and not managing because we thought maybe the managing was distracting a bit from the guitar playing and we you can anywhere you can get a manager but you can't get a guitar player like that 
we put that idea to him and he mulled it over and one day he just up and left. Really? And never spoke to any of us ever again. Really? After yeah. all that time? So you have not yeah. spoken to Marty since no. he left? And that no. was like, what, three years ago? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, four years ago. Okay. Maybe five years ago. Maybe it was 2013. Yeah, I think um, yeah, you're right, actually. No, I haven't, I haven't spoken to him and have nothing to say. Oh, he that's did, too bad. You know, he, um, well, what would I say? He, yeah. he, he, he left us, and that was his decision. I respect that. When he was on form, he was on fire, and yeah. he contributed so much to the church, and I would never deny that. But he went, and we got another guy, and I think the other guy is working out as well as him. Great. Okay. That's unfortunate. After all these years, I know he's out. I think he's in the States right now on a, yeah, I think on he a is. solo tour. And what, what are we, we going to say to each other? You know? Well, you've got 45 <laughs> years of 40 years of history. There's nothing you can talk about. There's no brotherhood. I was very disappointed to find, at least within the church, there was no brotherhood. Oh, that's unfortunate. No, there was no, no, there was no brotherhood. There were musicians who had a band that, yeah, co-workers. Doing, doing co-workers yeah. and the Brotherhood, I don't know what other bands had. I've, I haven't observed a lot of fucking Brotherhood, I tell you what. Really? In some of the bands I've seen, no. Mm-hmm. I've seen stars and workers, disgruntled workers a lot. I've seen that scenario where one guy's Mr. Main Man and the rest of the guys are also... Mm-hmm. And I've seen, I've seen bands like us where sort of... Everybody's got a list of grievances against everybody else. Mm. And, you know, times they literally and metaphorically had their toes stepped on and a lot of disgruntlement with each other. Yeah, yeah. no brotherhood. No brotherhood ever. That's a shame. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, so something that we try to cover on here very sensitively, sensitively is some of the business side of things. I'm curious, could you live off like... Milky Way royalties for the rest of your life. Ha ha ha. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. That's hilarious. Okay. Yeah, if I could live on eight grand a year. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Could you have I've, before streaming and, you know, downloading and all that kind of stuff? Was there a time when the the mailbox money from Milky Way and the other hits was so good that every time every now and then Milky Way would contribute a great lump to my bank account the last time was in 2010 and I stupidly it got used in this ad and my lawyer said you can get 250 grand now or hang in there for a year and we'll, I reckon we'll get a million because they used it against my permission mm. and I stupidly went for the 250 grand and 150 of that was an advance which I still haven't paid back so oh. Since 2010, Under Milky Way has actually earned me zilch. zilch. Wow, that is nuts. See, this is that's why I ask because I don't think regular people understand. They just assume rock stars are rich and live in the high life, and it's not that simple, you know. But okay, I impoverished myself by being a heroin addict. Before I entered heroin addiction, I was doing all right. I had a house, I had a studio, I had a couple of cars, I had a family and friends and maybe a hundred thousand dollars in the bank you know what I mean I was doing all right I was doing all right I couldn't I was affluent Mm -hmm. and then I 
fucked myself by being a junkie and ended up with nothing. And I have, I'm still struggling in the wake of that, even though that was 18 years ago since I last used, um, I'm still struggling in the wake, just existing, working as hard as I can, remembering I have, although I have five daughters, three of my daughters are sort of dependent on me and so I'm, I've got a family okay. to feed and it's expensive. Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah, I bet. yeah. So um, I'm, I always, I'm stumbling. I'm, I'm living out of my overdraft. I'm living off a credit card, which is now maxed out. I stumble and I struggle to make ends meet. Yeah. I do commission paintings, commission songs. Really? I'm going to try. Yeah, I'm going to do, um, I'm going to do a tour with, um, as I said, with Amanda Kramer playing uh-huh. the West Coast of America, playing unusual places. Um, I do. I'm a gun for hire. I sing fucking loads of tribute things in, in yeah. Australia. I've, I've done Bowie. I've done The Cure. I've done Jeff and Tim Buckley. I've done mm. Leonard Cohen. God, I've done, you know, and, yeah. and I, I go on TV shows and answer. I go on quiz shows answering with my encyclopedic knowledge of rock and roll. <laughs> right. You play, um, I know you play like 80s nostalgia shows now which i think those yes, are great I but i i don't i don't really because it, it's no i i think i don't like them at all why would i but they pay very good money that's what and i was gonna say i i go on stage i sing three or four of my biggest hits the audience love it obviously uh and they play big huge sold out venues mm-hmm. um but obviously i would rather be playing in a smaller theater playing the music that's dear to my heart yeah and playing not playing with a pickup band, but, you know, my optimum gig is playing with the church in some lovely place, especially in America where the church fans really love us playing some really special gig in some really special place like fucking Asheville, Mm. you know, or, or Seattle Mm -hmm. or, um, Arizona, man. Last time we played in Arizona, fucking went off Nice in, um, in Phoenix. I think it was it Phoenix or, or, Tucson. I can't remember. Anyway, we aced it um, on a really hot night. You know, people just, ex- you know, that I'd rather be doing that. Yeah. And then right down the end of the list is singing in a 80s golden oldies or 80s night or whatever it is. That's yeah. down the bottom of my list. However, I'd much rather be doing that than mowing lawns. Exactly. Or, do you know what I'm saying? I sure if do. I, if I, as long as I'm money, as long as I'm making money from music mm-hmm. i'm relatively happy but Good. within that relative happiness is a lot of different sort of variants yeah wow see now for some people like when i talked to david sterry for instance he went years not owning the rights to send me an angel and so he was not yeah, even making money off of his biggest hit and then suddenly he finally yeah. got that back yeah. And and for a while, so for a while there, he wasn't even able to make a living as a musician. Mm-hmm. And now he does those a lot of those '80s rewind shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm a fan of because I love those kinds of bands. But it's given him sort of almost a new lease on life. Like finally, I like you said, I can. It, it's better than mowing the lawns, making a making a living as a musician at that level is better than the alternative. And he knows that now by experience. I, I'm very happy for David Sterry and people like that. Um, however, I'm a musician constantly releasing new work. True. 
And I like to go out with my own band, playing my own show, doing it my way, mm-hmm. rather than being part of a big package deal. Having said that, I don't really resent being part of the package. And all of those people that I do those gigs with are super fucking nice people. Mm-hmm. And all of them deserve to be cashing in a bit in, in our twilight years, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. So I'm really happy to see David earning some money finally out of that song, which after all was a huge international hit. He yeah. should be fucking making money out of it. I if agree. it was any other business, any other business and someone had been ripped off like that, people would be going nuts. Yep. But musicians, that's we just put up with that and we do it because we love it. And we're, we're in some ways we're stupid. Mm-hmm. And we can write a song like Under the Milky Way or Send Me an Angel, but we can't, when it comes to knowing how to exploit that song, which publishing company, which lawyers, which managers, which agents, which fucking accountants and all the rest sure. of them, mm-hmm. you don't know. You, you, and you just make a mistake and bang, suddenly he turns around, he's not earning any money. Mm-hmm. You know, the small faces never made one cent from immediate <laughs> records. Not one fucking cent. That's Andrew Lou Goldham, folks, um, Immediate Records. At the end of it, nothing. And they had like, how many hits did the Small Faces have? They got nothing at all. It's tragic. Yeah, Um, yeah. Okay, one more question I meant to ask this earlier regarding drugs, and then we'll get off the topic. Is it true? Did did Grant from uh, the Go-Betweens introduce you to heroin? Yes. That is so sad. I love them. Well, because I love them. Why is that sad? I just don't... I, I mean, it's sad that he's dead. It's sad that two artists that I love bat, were, you know, bonded together under the, these unfortunate <laughs> circumstances. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's like, okay, you, you look at it that way. I look at it like this. At the end of 1990, my girlfriend was pregnant with my first set of twins who I wasn't very sure about being a dad. I didn't know if I had it in me. I, it wasn't that I didn't want the kids I wasn't sure how good a dad I was going to be. And I actually fulfilled that prophecy by being a rotten dad to them. And I'm sitting in a bar with Grant. He's never mentioned heroin before. We're sitting there. He's drinking beer. I'm sitting there drinking orange juice because I don't find any solace. Mm. Grant's really upset because his girlfriend's left him. It's a hot night. We don't know what to do with ourselves. And Grant goes, fuck this. I'm going to go and buy some drugs. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, what are you going to get? Because I was up for any, I thought mm-hmm. cocaine or whatever he said, I was going to go, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when he said heroin, I went, oh. And I went, yeah, here, get me a hundred bucks worth. <laughs> and he went, he went and got it. Um, we went back to my place. I chopped it up and snorted it. It was a very subtle drug. It wasn't what I was expecting at all. It was very subtle. Mm-hmm. It was hard to sort of even say exactly what it was doing. It wasn't like taking acid or anything, where which is like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. like, but then, you know, I began to, after a little while, I began to recognize this sort of wrapped up in a warm, woolly, just mm. the way I, lo- oh, my most favorite feeling in the world, that feeling when I was a boy and I'd been out playing all day long and finally my mother said, all right, you boys can come back in the house at six o'clock after playing all day long really hard or swimming or running around or whatever the fuck it was, it wasn't mm-hmm. sitting around looking at an iPad. We ran around all day long. We rode bikes, like went for it, climbed mm-hmm. trees, all this stuff. Then you get inside, you have a shower or a bath and you sit there and Disneyland had come on TV <laughs> at six o'clock and you just sat there feeling warm and content and not thinking very much. Mm-hmm. Do you know that feeling? Sure, It's like real... 
oh, yeah, everything just feels nice and cool and I'm cool with myself and I'm cool with my world and everything that's happening is kind of interesting and that's sort of how Smack made me feel instantly. So I don't blame Grant. Yeah. You know, I was a grown man. I was in my 30s and what's he going to say? Oh, no, no, no. He probably... He probably thought he was doing me a favor. He was going to turn me on to something and that I would be like him who had the common sense to not want to do it every day because he was someone, he was someone, one of these rare guys, not many of them, but they exist, these guys that can do a drug like heroin occasionally, Mm. like every two weeks. Really? You know, yeah. So you don't get a habit. See, I I wondered if... When he died, it was a, you know, a heart no, attack, sort nothing, of a nothing attack. related to drugs. Heroin is actually good for your heart, believe it or not. Pure heroin would mm. be good for your heart. It slows it down. It's not like cocaine or speed. Okay. It slows it down and it's good for your nerves. Grant's death, I don't believe, was caused by any drug. I believe it was caused by lack of exercise, mm. eating the wrong food and drinking and smoking a load of cigarettes. Mm. Okay, that's unfortunate. I wondered if that was, if there was some sort of, you know, secret story that doesn't get out that really has something about to do what? with tr- about, about his, his death. death. Yeah, about that. No, the no, that, quote unquote well, heart who attack. Knows? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? He had okay. he had a massive heart attack. But when I thought about it, Grant, because my father died very young of a heart attack, and so did mm. Grant's father. Mm. Now Grant ticked every box. What do we know about heart attacks? Right. First of all, exercise. Mm-hmm. No. Secondly, don't smoke. Grant, two packets of Peter Stuyvesant a day. Third, which is only coming out more and more and more, don't fucking drink too much alcohol. Mm -hmm. Grant sat at a bar all day long drinking and smoking. And thirdly, oh, and loads of coffee, which, well, that's a debatable one, but that's Mm -hmm. mixed in with all the other things that certainly might not have helped. And and lastly, I don't know what he ate. Mm. I knew the guy, he was my best mate. I can't ever remember sitting down. I would sit down and order a fucking, you know, a veggie burger and chips mm-hmm. and Grant would have a coffee and a wine and smoke mm-hmm. a cigarette and mm-hmm. watch me eat and go, oh, I'm not hungry. So I don't even know what he ate. Right. Oh, that sounds too bad. But I, but, but he, I tell you what, he wasn't a vegetarian. <laughs> well, you know, that's, you know, he, unfortunately, with his, his genetic predisposition, with his father dying early, mm-hmm. which obsessed Grant, he just did all the wrong things. Hmm. He was not overweight and you wouldn't have thought he was unfit, but in reality, he, he never really did very much. And towards the end of his life, he was like a, he was like a, um, Charles Bukowski type hmm. character. Hmm. When he wasn't touring, he was sitting at a, his favorite bar in Queensland and a gang of disciples like Ian Hogue from Powderfinger, who now plays with the church, mm-hmm. Ian Hogue and other Brisbane musicians and hangers-on and roadies and groupies, Grant would hold court. And boy, he was such a raconteur. He was the most funny, dry. He had a way of dismissing. He had a way of blowing smoke out of his mouth mm-hmm. sideways and go, <laughs> uh-huh. and that meant... That meant, this, like if the engineer said, hey, I think you should do that vocal again, Grant would turn around, blow the smoke out of the side of his mouth, and that said it all. That's mm. like, that's what I think of your fucking idea, mate, and don't, <laughs> you know. 
So, um, uh. so Grant, so Grant was a marvelous raconteur. He was in okay. a bar. He was a bar fly. He held court, hmm. and he was a genius. He was my best friend, and I'm so sad he died. But, and I was fucking shocked and surprised at the time. But looking back on all the factors, he's doing all. He was doing all the same things yeah. as my dad, except my dad didn't drink. But no exercise, smoking loads of fags, yeah. worrying, you know, all this mm -hmm. stuff. So, okay. yeah. Are yeah, you close yeah, at all uh, with Robert from the go-betweens? No, I'm not. I'm not at all. Um, Were no, they? Always been, Is that another uh, no, they, no they non-brotherhood? No, no, no. They had a complicated relationship. They were, they were mm. like brothers okay. with all the stuff that would come with a brother. Sometimes you love your brother and you're closer to him than anyone else. Other times you'd be in sort of conflict. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. you'd be like having old wounds would arise. But totally. him him and him and him and Robert were uh, were real partners, and maybe they had the brotherhood mm. that that I didn't have. But Grant and I Grant and I had the brotherhood totally. If you talk, that was the thing. Grant and I did a couple of little tours in Australia. We did a sort of a pr promo and little gigs in America tour. And we were like brothers. We were mm. like partners in crime, going around the world, being me and him and looking at only from our point of view, mm. like two Sydney pseudo intellectuals, you know, who right. love Dylan and take drugs and looking at all the fucking rednecky. Yeah sort of and philistines that's yeah. how grant and i would have described them the Phil the guy from the record company goes hi i'm randy i love you record guys you know we're like yeah grant look at me blow the smoke out of the side of his mouth and go wow you know pleased to meet you and then you know we'd be having we'd be having this fucking existentialist joke at everybody's including ourselves grant would say to me Oh, Steve, go on, play me almost with you. Play, please. Oh, Steve. I go, no, you don't want to hear. Yes, go on, Steve, play me almost with you. I get out my guitar and play almost with you. And I get halfway into it and he's giggling <laughs> like, like it's the most, he's like, it's the most absurd fucking stupid <laughs> thing he's ever heard. That's wow. the kind of shit we did to each other. Okay. Uh, you know, we, um, we, we, we put each other in situations. Uh, Grant and I would sit on the steps of my recording studio and women would walk past mm. And Grant was very, very shy around women. And I would go up to all these women and go, excuse me, miss, have you ever heard of the go-betweens? And most of them would go, yeah. I'd go, that's the lead singer sitting there, Grant McLennan, come over and meet him. And Grant would be going, no, Stephen, no, no, no. And, you know, it would be fucking hilarious. So, we, so yeah, we really put each other on the spot all the time. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. I didn't know that. I didn't know if you remained friends or what. I, I love that band. We, and so it's well, know. you know what? You know what? Ironically, when I plunged into true junkiedom mm -hmm. and Grant remained at just an occasional user, we fell out. Mm. We, we fell out over bad. drugs yeah. and we fell out over me being an addict. And I once, uh, the final straw was um, I was playing a show in Brisbane and Grant invited me to go and stay with him and his then fiance, who they never actually got married. She was a lovely girl too. And, um, I went round there and I stayed there the first night. The second night, I went and moved in with my heroin dealer who oh. lived in Brisbane. I went and stayed oh. with him for three nights. And Grant's like, yeah, all right, see you later. That's it, you know. But that's, that, 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 they were my values. Yeah. I, you know, all the friendship in the world isn't as nice as being right close to the source and all the fucking freebies he was giving out. Yeah. 
Oh, that's yeah. tragic. Uh, yeah. Um, I like talking to you because I can tell you're opinionated and you don't hold back. Can I ask you about other down under sure. artists that I love? Um, yeah. What's your take on Neil Finn? Are you close to him? Do you genius. know him at all? Genius. I've, I had the pleasure of meeting him. He's a total fucking genius. He writes those Paul McCartney-esque chord progressions. He's my all-time favorite to, songwriter. I don't know how he does it. I, I, yeah. he's, way beyond, he's way beyond me in his, in his chordal knowledge. Mm-hmm. His, his melodic strength, his chordal knowledge, he's quite unique. And I totally take my hat off to him. And okay. boy, if he ever rang me up and said, hey, Kilby, get down here and <laughs> give me a hand, I'd be there like a fucking shot. Nice. Nice. Okay. That's good to know. Uh, you know, in America, people at the time anyway, really loved in excess. They don't seem like your type of band. Maybe no, they are your type of they're people. Not. They're not. I, I love, um, I love a couple of songs. I love, um, by my side mm-hmm. in the dark of night. Mm-hmm. And I like, they can never tear us apart. Right. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. I love those songs. Um, most of the rest of it didn't, didn't move me, you okay. know. Okay. Um, I I was rude at the time, and I b- would slag them off and say it's like Mickey Mouse music with all those all that dick 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 sort of little, you know, all those little sort of things they I had do. doing that. Sure. Um, I that was anathema to me because I was into. Mm-hmm. I'm a classicist. Yeah. You know, I wanted my music to sound like David Bowie and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't. I didn't like the '80s. I resisted the zeitgeist. So um, that's why I could dig Neil Finn. Couldn't really dig in excess, but I met Michael Hutchins a few times and he was the most charismatic, seriously, I don't throw that fucking word around. He was, he had fucking charisma in spades, man. Seriously. He, he, wow. He was radiating it. I believe it. I'm, I was, I was envious of him. Yeah. He had, he, he had more charisma in his toenail clippings of the whole church put together. Yep. Yeah. I think that's true. I agree. But you know, his lyrics were kind of neither here nor there. So, you know, he had charisma, but his lyrics, he wasn't mm-hmm. a great lyricist. He was a great performer mm-hmm. and he was a good singer, but his lyrics were sort of, I don't know, they, to me, they're okay. They're not, they're yeah. not bad lyrics, but they didn't drag me into a yeah. world where I wanted, where I could be yeah. like the way Bowie and the Beatles and T-Rex and the birds and whoever, mm-hmm. Dylan and Springsteen to a certain extent, you know, Patti Smith, they, they, television, they really did it. They took you into, they created a world. When you put their record on, you entered their world. In Excess didn't do that for me. Mm. Maybe, but also I was in competition and jealous and envious sure. and all this stuff. So I, it was hard. Sometimes it's hard to get all that, all of that out of your sort of system, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I, I'm not really a lyrics person, so I don't care that much about lyrics. I'm more into like hooks and, you know, catchiness. And so I feel like NXS are one of those bands that are actually at this point kind of sorely underrated and deserve to be re- kind of re-examined. But that's just my feeling. On yeah. The to me, my number one suit is lyrics. Okay. That's, that's, I can tell that's by your book. That's what I'm very, that's my very best thing. Not bass playing, not singing, mm-hmm. not fucking painting pictures or writing poems. I'm a lyricist. I'm a fucking really good lyricist. So to me, a good lyric doesn't have to be complicated either. Mm -hmm. There are very simple good lyrics. They're not, they're not, I don't, I don't mean they have to be involved fucking 
like gothic novels or stuff with all kinds of weird, lovely. I mean, you know, Be My Baby is a good lyrics. Yeah. Um, but do you think you write simple just, lyrics? Because I sure don't. No. In fact, no, I'm laughing as you're saying this. What I was just yesterday, I was because I've been listening to your stuff nonstop to get ready. And uh, it struck me yesterday there was a song that had succubus in it. Yes. And yes. I can't remember which song it was now, but I just that, thought. That's Luster. That's it, yes. And I just thought, man, Steve has balls to throw succubus into a song for a you know a rock group. I look, I my ambition is to get all of Western culture into into a song. So I want to reconcile every fucking thing there is. Nice. <laughs> every everything wherever I can get it from the world of chemistry, from the world of magic from the world of, of the the old dead poets, from if I read a fucking, you know, like on my first album, Deluxe Locations, just near completion, I just pulled that lyric straight off a fucking sign one day. Mm. It was perfect for that song. Mm-hmm. I, I recontextualize. I'm going through life like a whale, sucking in water, taking ideas out, recontextualizing them, recontextualizing them, representing them to people, I said to my, my at the time, wife, I said, you could write lyrics if you want to. Just pull them out of the air. And she said, that might work for you, but that doesn't work for me. I said, there you go, right there. <laughs> There's and a lyric. Went, yes. And then she said, well, you can see it, but I couldn't see it until you saw it. And I said, there's the fucking second line. <laughs> and she keeps saying, but it, it takes your you to recontextualize them, but to an ordinary person, Ordinary people can't seem to see the beauty in some simple phrase. Mm. But to me, my whole life, I've been sucking in phrases and words and sentences, reading books, listening to songs and sort of words, the English language, the rich English language and using it for all its jokiness and ambiguity. That's my specialty. That's what I do. So when I hear, when I hear... I want a new sensation. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't move me. Mm-hmm. I'm like a, I, I, I need, I need something. I need to be moved. And, and what moves me is, often, as I said, be my baby moves me. Mm-hmm. But why that moves me? It's not just the lyrics. It's also the way they're sung. Mm-hmm. And, and like one song could have a line, be my baby, and it could be awful. But in that song, the way it goes down with the chords and the arrangement and everything. Be My Baby is pure genius because 
it so I, it doesn't have to be a complicated lyric for me to think it's a good lyric. It has to be appropriate. It's like bass playing. Mm-hmm. To me, good bass playing is appropriate bass playing, doing the right thing at the right time and being clever enough to spot it, being yeah. clever enough to spot a great lyric, a great place to start. So um, good. So that's what I kind of do. I, I, I go through life and I, I spot all this stuff floating by that other people wouldn't notice. And that really is my talent as a I, spotter. I can tell. That was really profound, what you just said about your wife, actually, pulling those lines out and realizing the power of them individualistically. That's kind of amazing. Um, and you saying that, you know, about the simplicity, some days I think the best song ever written might be My Girl by The Temptations. Because of what you're saying, the simple lyric, the impassioned delivery that is so, but is also very universal, touches on, you know, a a threat, a thread, a common thread of honesty and sincerity. Uh, uh, Okay. If we're going to talk about the temptations, I'm going to mention, I'm going to make you love me. Mm. Ooh, yeah. With the Supremes and the temptations, Mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. You know that song? Uh, I don't know if I know the one you're singing. It doesn't sound familiar okay. yet. I'm going to make you love me by the Supreme. It's a collaboration between the Supremes and the Temptations. Ooh, I don't know that one. I'm going to do all the things for you a girl wants a man to do. Oh, baby. I'll sacrifice for you. I'll even do wrong for you. Oh, baby. Big hit in the 60s totally yeah. gets to your heart, yeah, makes you go, really wow. Um, yeah. You know, and then okay. there's other really, Kate Bush or someone with really complicated lyrics that get that get you going, you know. Yeah. Um, Dylan, with all yeah. his twists and turns and different incarnations. Sometimes he's simple, sometimes it's complicated. But right. I, like, I wouldn't like to think like people think I'm complicated, but I'm complex. Yeah, certainly. that's good. That's good. Um, another, one more artist that's from down in your way that sort of straddles this line is uh, the Hoodoo Gurus. I think Dave Faulkner is one of the greatest pop song writers in history. He, uh, it's not as, uh, I don't know what it is. I could tell by the look on your face that you may not be agreeing or you're d- deciding how you feel, but I just feel like that guy's got hooks inside of him that are so catchy and so wonderful, but I could tell you don't agree. I'm pleading the fifth. Ah! <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I think he's a genius. I love that band. Well, so I always, first of all, this is this is one of my favorite chats I've ever had. I really appreciate your honesty and sincerity. Yeah. I love it. Oh, Thank yeah. you for talking with me. Thank you for talking with me. Absolutely. Do people in the West Coast hear this? Oh, yeah. It goes out on the internet. Okay. I have listeners okay. all over okay. the place. C- can I plug this idea? Sure. Me on guitar and bass and singing and Amanda Kramer on the piano who's plays for the furs and Susie and the Banshees and world party and 10,000 maniacs, like a real keyboard player du jour. Uh-huh. 
we are, and we've written some songs together as well. We are doing a tour of the West Coast and we're doing, we're doing um, out of the way places like recording studios and churches and probably bowling greens and people's patios, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. to be a really special esoteric gig. And we're looking, anybody who's listening to this, I have a fan page, Steve Kilby on, on Facebook. Um, you can go there and it's just Tina Dunn who's running this tour in America. She's just put up a, a thing about it and we're looking for people to say, you should come to Sacramento and play the Cowboy Bar again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we're trying to put together this really unusual, cool and groovy tour. Um, so that's that's what I'm sort of spruiking at the moment. Okay. And we're hoping to get this. We've already got a few gigs booked. Going to Santa Fe, New Mexico, somewhere mm-hmm. I've wanted to go so badly. Really? Never been there. Going there on this tour and playing in a recording studio. Nice. When? Um, when is this? The, what's the time April, frame? April. 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 Okay, good. April. So um, we're looking. So anybody hearing this who would like to see this, go to my Facebook. Uh, listen how fucking 2018 this is. Go to my <laughs> Facebook page. There's a thing on the top about this, about this tour and uh-huh. trying to get gigs together. There's like a couple of hundred people have suggested things. But if you have a really concrete suggestion, like please come to mm-hmm. somewhere on the West Coast, you know, yeah. and play this venue, I think it's going to be amazing because okay. I saw Robert Hitchcock there last week mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you have an idea, please get involved and suggest uh, some venues for us to play Excellent. at. Excellent. Okay. I really hope my listeners do that. Uh, last, yeah. last thing, last question. Tell me your okay. favorite rock story. Tell me the story that this is something that relates to you. When you sit back in your chair and you're, you know, you're lighting up, you're smoking your favorite hash, and huh. you're just thinking, I cannot believe this happened to me or the craziest thing happened to me. What is that thing? Okay, I'm going to tell you, but it ain't funny. That's okay. One night in Australia, we did this gig in a town called Armadale. One freezing cold night in about 1982 when our, or 83 when our fortunes had maybe slumped a bit and there weren't many people at the gig. And anyway, we were staying at this hotel or motel on the edge of town, the darkness of the edge of town. Mm-hmm. It was sort of half built. Anyway, we go in our room. We all, um, we were, we, we were sharing apartments. So, so there were like two room, two bedrooms within each apartment. I was in with the drummer as usual. And the two guitarists were in their own, their own apartment, opposite us, a hall. Okay. And um, I wasn't feeling very happy generally. So, and I had smoked a load of dope and probably drunk a load of booze. I got into bed and went to sleep. And a couple of hours later, I'm woken up by the drummer just going nuts and trying to get in my bed. And I sit up in bed. I punch this mother out. I say, what the <laughs> fuck, man? Don't you ever get in my fucking bed naked with me. He goes, let me in bed, let me in bed. I'm going, no. I say, you better go back in your own room, man. And I was furious and I was punching him. Like I was really hitting this guy who was eight years younger than me and skinny. So I could only pick on him because he was, I knew I could, you know what I mean? And right. he, was, he was hysterical. And he was going, I'm not going back in my room. And I said, I said, you're not getting in my bed. He said, can I sleep on the carpet at the foot of your bed? And I went, yeah, I guess so. And he did that. Although in the morning when I woke up, the little bastard had gotten into bed with me, but it hadn't woken me up. So I woke up and I said, what the hell was all that about? And he was going, something really bad going on in there, man. I couldn't stay in there. This is terrible. It's, Can't you feel it? And I'm going, 
yeah, I kind of can feel something. You know, it was kind of like very unpleasant. Uh-huh. Meet, meet the other two guys in the foyer. They go, how was your night, boys? And I went fucking shocking. Plug got in bed with me all night going nuts. And they're going, yeah, it was horrible. I couldn't, they were going, we couldn't sleep. It was horrible. It was fucked. It was awful. Worst place ever. So as we're checking out, I say to the woman, what's going on here with this hotel? And she goes, um, oh, yeah, it's got a really sad history. This guy got it half built. And then he was living here with his family. And then he ran out of money. And he had this suicide where he killed his family. And then he killed himself. Oh. And like, man. Oh. That, yeah. Oh. So that, and so that yeah. you think the place was like haunted? Oh, totally. Really? The you drummer. felt that firsthand? Well, not you, the but drummer. the other guys. Oh, no. Yeah, no, no. No, like afterwards, no, like it was like I'm maybe not so in touch as like our drummer was more of a guy. Uh-huh. Like I'm more of a sort of an intellectual kind. He was more of a in, in primitive man. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. uh-huh. He, was, he was in touch with what was going on around him. I'm more like I would have checked into the room and been angry at what someone said and uh, rang my girlfriend up and had an argument or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I wasn't so in touch with the environment then as I probably am now. Mm-hmm. And he was like, he felt it immediately. He was freaked out. And the other guys in their own ways were both freaked out by it. Wow. So, and wow. when I thought about it, it was, it was fucking cold and unpleasant room. Very bad feng shui. You might say these days. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking with me, Steve. I uh, I love you. I love, I've loved you for 30 years and I'm so grateful you talked to me. I'm glad you got to touch my back. Me too. Means a lot. Even more now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right, dude. Take care. There you have it. Steve Kilby, the best. I loved that interview. That is one of my top Five, probably, that we've ever had. So good. Thank you, Steve, for doing that with me. Now, as I mentioned before, stick around after this last song. You're going to hear a little bit of bonus material that relates back to an episode that we did uh, about a year and a half ago. Regular listeners may know what I'm talking about, okay? And this song right here is called Dark Waltz. It's the last track on that album that the church put out last year, Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity. I love this album. If you like, I mean, let's be fit, let's be honest. You know what you're getting into with it when you get into the church. It's going to be sort of a hazy, cerebral, druggy, psychedelic. You're not looking at, like I said, sax solos. You're looking at like a deeper resonance. And if you like that, you will love this latest church album. And you'll like the Kilby Kennedy album as well. All right. We are going to be very busy the next little while. So next week's guest there will be a clue to next week's guest actually i'm going to give it away in a bonus episode we're putting out in a few days i got to interview one of my favorite musicians of all time he's a member of a band that i have mentioned many many times on here as being like a top 10 favorite band of all time and the interview did not go well it's a train wreck And so, instead of making it an official uh, episode, we're going to put it out as a bonus. And in that bonus episode, you'll find out who next week's guest is. And then next week, if all goes to plan, 
Yan and I are going to release our Q&A and recap episode as well. So in the next couple weeks, you're going to get like four or five episodes, okay? Anyway, hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. You know what you can do. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can email us at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Huge thanks to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for everything that you do, buddy. Uh, We will see you guys in a couple of days with the bonus episode that's a train wreck. And keep listening for a little bit more Steve Kilby information. We'll see you guys later. of tears don't crumble now the future has beckoned There was one big question I wanted to ask you because it ties back to another episode we've done. And I forgot because I got got so swept away in our previous conversation. So here's the deal. This will take almost no time at all. Uh, When I say it's about a band, when I say the words, the mighty lemon drops, I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Underwhelming. Really? (laughs) Okay, because I had David Newton on here from the Mighty Lemon Drops, and he told a story about when he was, they were touring with you guys, something related to some chocolate. (laughs) Yeah, that I I guess. You want to hear my side of the story? I do, yes, please. These little pricks, these pricks, they were on the front page of New Musical Express for one week. And it said, is this the greatest band in England? Right? Uh-huh. So they got a gig opening for us, um, who had a hit with Under the Milky Way. And they were quite incensed because they were the greatest band in England. New Musical Express had said so. And here they were touring America with a bunch of Australian hippies mm. who weren't the greatest band in England and were far from it. 
And one night, it wasn't my chocolate, but one of the guys in the band had wanted this particular chocolate every night. And because we were now rock stars, we could have whatever we liked. So he ordered his favorite fucking toddler or wherever it was. Right. And when we came off, it had been eaten. <laughs> and a bit of a... Um, a bit of a brawl broke out, not that I was participating, but the guys who chocolate it was started pushing the mighty lemon drops, who were all tiny little thin geezers, <laughs> by the way. Right. Um, he started pushing them around. There was a bit of push and shove, and then eventually um, our tour manager waded in and sorted them all out. And he... that was really it. Okay. And um, we never really had much to do with them. And then about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was in San Diego, and this small, thought, small, fat, bald English came up to me. Hey, Steve, it's Steve, Steve. I said, yeah, hello, who are you? Oh, I'm in the Mighty Lemon Drops. Remember me? And I went, where's my fucking chocolate? <laughs> That's that what it. he said you said. That's great. 